Today we look at Afghanistan, its history since 1978, and my take on why things went so wrong. That is next. Hey, welcome back to the Barry Farrow Show, Culture Shift. Today, we'll look at Afghanistan from three perspectives. First, the idea of full engagement for the purpose of nation building. Second, the strategy of disengagement. And finally, limited engagement for the purpose of containment over the long haul. Before we dive in, let me just say that though there were unforced errors on the debacle of the withdrawal, it is my sincere hope that all efforts to remedy the mistakes will succeed. Got to be with them. Okay, let's talk about Afghanistan and why the world just got a lot more dangerous. Afghanistan's a landlocked country. They have 39 million people. It's bordered by Pakistan to the east and to the south and Iran to the west and Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan and Tajikistan to the north and China to the northeast. It has a history of turmoil. We'll start with 1978. Back in the 70s, Russia was much larger, and it was called the USSR, or the Soviets. And they had an expansive nation-building strategy with the goal of forcing communism upon their subjects. At the time, the Soviets backed a coup in Afghanistan and put Mohammad Taraki in charge of the communist government. But it only took a year for another coup where a Muslim leader ousted the Soviet puppet. So the Soviets invaded Afghanistan with their own military might, and they murdered the Muslim leader. The Soviets put their own KGB guy in charge of Afghanistan. So three coups from 1978 to the end of 1979. But even though the Soviets had way more military power, they had a dickens of a time with those Muslim guerrillas. The Muslims launched a jihad or a holy war against the Soviets. They were considered the foreign atheists. At that time, the U.S. was the sworn enemy of the USSR, and this became a proxy war. The U.S. decided to help the Muslim guerrillas in Afghanistan. It probably doesn't seem possible, but it's true. In fact, the United States got Britain, China, and several Muslim nations to join in support of the Muslim guerrillas. So the U.S.-led coalition against the Soviets... And to pull this off, the USA supported the Mujahideen or the Holy Warriors, and it worked. The Mujahideen inflicted heavy casualties on the Russians, so the mighty Red Army failed to suppress the guerrillas. And when they started to add up the cost of the war, and they decided after 10 short years that this powerful USR that invaded Afghanistan would have to leave with their tail between their legs. It's funny how nation-building doesn't work so well. The United States joined with Pakistan to have the Soviets sign an agreement where the Soviets agreed to withdraw all their military forces from Afghanistan. So what did the U.S. have to give up to get the Soviets to sign this agreement? The United States agreed to quit supplying arms to the anti-Soviet factions in Afghanistan. And Afghanistan and Pakistan, who share a 1,620-mile long border, they agreed to leave each other alone, to not interfere with each other's affairs. So the last Soviet soldier left Afghanistan in February of 1989. They had lost too many lives. Russia said it cost them too much money, and they made no headway in converting Afghanistan to communists. So with the Soviets gone, you would think the Afghans could enjoy some peace. Unfortunately, Afghanistan rolled right into a civil war. Out of this internal war, the group that became the most powerful 
was the Taliban. The Taliban was formed in the early 1990s. These were the same guys who had resisted the Soviet occupation. They won support over their rival Mujahideen groups by getting rid of crime in some cities and taking over the capital of Kabul in 1996. So that's when the Taliban declared Afghanistan an Islamic emirate. With a very harsh brand of justice in accordance with Sharia law and influenced by austere doctrines, in addition to amputations for theft and public beheadings for adultery, it has a strange hatred toward music. It also exacts harsh treatment for men with clean-shaven faces and uh, harsher treatment for women who are not covered head to toe in public. So at the peak of their rule, they used the soccer fields for their public beheadings. That has a way of getting fear instilled into you. So fear of the Taliban gets really deep into the psyche of the average Atif, the average Joe. So after the 1989 to 1996 civil war, the Taliban took over, and by 2001, over 90% of the country was taken over by the Taliban. And during this period is when all kinds of bad things happened, this uh, period up to 2001, not the least of which was the Taliban providing refuge to al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden. That group initiated the horrible terrorist acts against the United States in 2001. They flew planes into the World Trade Center two iconic skyscrapers in Manhattan. And through suicide, they killed thousands of innocent people. So when the Taliban refused to hand over Osama, the U.S. responded by an invading Afghanistan and beating them up. At this time, the U.S. and their allies developed a plan called ISAF, which officially stands for International Security Assistance Force. The mission was to train the Afghan military. The joke, though, became... I suck at fighting. <laughs> Here's an example video of a U.S. sergeant trying to teach an Afghan recruit the jumping jacks just to make the point. Doesn't exactly strike fear in the heart of the enemy, does it? So some became skilled fighters, but the reality is that the U.S. forces did most of the actual heavy lifting. So the joke for ISAF changed from I suck at fighting to I see Americans fighting. There just was something about the plan that was not working. It wasn't dependable. It wasn't a total failure, but the origin of the plan for ISAF did not come from soldiers or generals or commanders on the ground. It was derived from a multinational committee of bureaucrats. They sat around a conference table thousands of miles away to plan frontline efforts that they really knew very little about. So how did the plan gain so much credibility? Well, they brought in the Mujahideen, the warlords, to sign off on the deal. And these were the same warlords that were heavily engaged in Afghan civil war in the 1990s. These guys happily signed off on the deal. Why not? They could siphon untold millions to keep themselves in power and undermine U.S. strategy at the same time. Some commander-level people believe that ISAF is a very misguided program that was developed by bureaucrats who think their academic smarts qualifies them for something that really you can only get by having on-the-ground military savvy. It's true, though. Whenever bureaucrats write the policy with no personal impact to themselves and whenever politicians set the rules of engagement, it has the potential to waste billions of dollars and, in this case, have a huge cost in human life. But that just takes you up to 2009. The security situation in Afghanistan got worse. In fact, it was so bad that anti-war President Obama increased the troop count from 25,000 in 2008 to 100,000 in August of 2010. It went up to 110,000 by the next year. Now, let's fast forward to June when the G7 
this of this year, when the G7, that's Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, the United Kingdom, and the United States, when those seven countries, their leaders, met in southwest England, Afghanistan was downplayed. This is just June. The leaders gave it three sentences in a 25-page document. They basically said, yeah, continue to support the Afghan government. This is what happens when you make decisions from a stuffy conference room. This, this is only two months ago. Now, that very government that they confidently assumed would be supporting doesn't exist at all. The G7 just met again, virtually, August 24th. The other six leaders and the head of the UN, the head of NATO, the head of the European Commission, all joined forces to try to convince President Biden to extend the arbitrary self-imposed deadline of August 31st. Biden wouldn't budge. He had his reasons. Fear of the Taliban attacking the runway. Fear of more stampedes. Fear of ISIS-K. They're a competitor group with the power to inflict a lot of damage through suicide bombings. And at this taping, unfortunately, that seems to be the case. All that fear and short-term thinking means the military begins packing August 27th. The U.S. will remove everything it can, including 500 Afghan commandos who are on our side. And though thousands have been evacuated, at least a thousand, and maybe many more, Americans still remain trapped. Estimates on the interpreters, the drivers, the guards, and all those that won't be rescued exceed 50,000. No one seems to know for sure how high that number is. Now, once the foreign troops depart, the Taliban will be in charge of everything, every flight, every departure. Yet the Taliban's already restricting doctors, engineers, and other professionals from leaving. They claim they just want their expertise in the country. But the female teachers, judges, and lawyers are fearful for good reason. This could become, and I'm not hoping it does, I hope it doesn't, but this could become a massive hostage crisis. Dozens of organizations like Samaritan's Purse are attempting to rescue their people in creative ways that do not rely on the U.S. military. Meanwhile, the International Rescue Committee estimates that there are 550,000 internal refugees. Those are people that are coming from just the outlying areas in Afghanistan to Kabul. And the clock is ticking. This is the result of a frail, short-term strategic purpose. And it's still run by people who don't seem to know what they're doing. The Taliban is known for brutal killings. They hearken back to the 7th century. They torture, they amputate, they behead for violations of Sharia law. And they mercilessly beat people for minor infractions. The Taliban's not only harsh, but it's resilient. They withstood NATO, the North Atlantic Treaty Organization's planning and implementation. Over 2,300 U.S. troops have been killed. Over 1,100 NATO troops. Over 47,000 Afghan civilians have died directly as a result since 2007 of the war. And an estimated 73,000 Afghan troops and police officers. The Taliban suffered tens of thousands of deaths too, but for them it's different. It's a recruiting tool. In fact, the Taliban's now stronger than it was 20 years ago. The Council on Foreign Relations estimates that there are up to 100,000 full-time Taliban fighters. Back in 2001, there were only three countries that recognized the Taliban. Now there's a total of 50 countries that are engaging with the Taliban regime without any major conditions on them. And that includes China and Russia. So the U.S. and the rest of the G7 used to be able to create their own agenda, set the table, set the pace. And that was just a few weeks ago. Now this influence shifts from a G7 issue 
to a broader coalition where China and Russia have veto power. And even before the withdrawal debacle, the Taliban increased its attacks on civilians and seized control of critical border crossings because we were leaving. News reports that uh, militants are going door to door have been verified. They're seeking out high-level Afghan officials, interpreters, and, and they're killing them. In one example, we have a gruesome picture of a three former Afghan National Army officers found hanged in their hideout. So, so what do we learn? Well, Afghanistan is the recipient of all three potential foreign policy strategies in recent decades. The first strategy is nation building. That never works. The Russians failed. We failed. When the U.S. smacked the Taliban in 2001, we were effective initially. We had focus, but we made the mistake of saying it was our responsibility to remake Afghanistan. Secretary of State Colin Powell and National Security Advisor Condoleezza Rice made it clear that the strategy was to reshape the country so that we didn't have to keep coming back to beat up the Taliban. Well, that communicates our short-term mindset, and it results in overreach that never ends up well. You don't just pop in, change everyone's mind, and leave. The second strategy is disengagement. That's the current prevailing view. It's politically easy to explain. Why in the world are we over in a foreign land in the first place? It's also naive, and it ignores recent history. Afghanistan was the recipient of disengagement from 1996 to 2001. We were asleep at the wheel when we were attacked on 9-11, but we knew the Taliban and al-Qaeda were free to plan and execute horrible things by themselves, isolated. Ignoring the problem did not make it go away. The third strategy is effective limited engagement for the purpose of containment over the long haul. It's a nuanced strategy that's subject to ridicule by politicians and the media. It's not nation building, and it's also not disengagement. It's not running, isolating, and pretending the problem of evil sanctuaries don't exist, and it's not an arrogant belief that you can fix everything. Limited engagement takes leadership. The case has to be made by the commander-in-chief. It'd be simple to do so. You know, we already have over 800 military bases in over 70 countries. We already are involved in effective but limited engagement for the purpose of containment over the long haul. In a landlocked country with neighbors like Pakistan and China and Iran, and where we already enjoy the sunk cost of a world-class airbase, it's foolish to think we'll be better off abandoning it. Limited engagement is focused and effective. In this instance, it measures and monitors what's required to maintain a lethal force that makes it hard for the Taliban and al-Qaeda to develop munitions and strategic planning capabilities. That strategy requires armed assault periodically. But if we allow the commanders on the ground to shape the tactics, the surgical strikes are usually all we need once we're established, as we were just a few months ago. The Taliban was biding their time in neighboring Pakistan because they knew the U.S. commitment was temporary. What would have happened if there was no U.S. and allies exit plan? It would make it hard for the enemy to gain solid footing. He may always be lurking around the corner, but when you're close to him, you know what he's up to, and you can more easily defeat him. And it's much less expensive than not being there at all. Disengagement allows the enemy to develop bad plans in the dark. In fact, in Afghanistan, the heavy infrastructure costs are already behind us. I mean, the go-forward annual maintenance costs would be less than our involvement in South Korea or Japan. Nation building doesn't work because you can't really remake a country. 
The U.S. is good friends with South Korea, for example. And we've been there since 1957. And we still have 28,500 troops stationed there. That's 10 times what was needed to keep Afghanistan under control. We don't have a planned exit because our presence keeps evil North Korea at bay. We have no plans to remake South Korea. We do have a solid relationship with them. We enjoy some reciprocal benefits. But South Korea is its own country. We have limited our involvement to military things volitionally. The U.S. rebuilt Japan in three phases from the end of World War II until 1952. But we didn't convert the Japanese people to Christianity. We didn't remake their culture. By the time the terms of 1952 treaty came along, we were pretty good friends. And we were much more concerned about the Soviets than Japan. That treaty allows the U.S. to keep bases of operations in Japan permanently. We still have 55,000 troops stationed in Japan. We have no plans to exit. We've been there for almost 70 years. If we had conveyed to the world long-term commitment in Afghanistan, we would have established the foundation of a positive influence for peace. This would enable tactical improvements year over year, and it would weaken the enemy's resolve. But we gave them certainty that we would abandon ship. The idea of disengagement is appealing, but it's flawed. The idea of nation building is arrogant, but it's flawed too. We tried that for 16 years in Afghanistan, eight years under Bush and eight years under Obama. Trump opened the door for disengagement. Biden ran through the door with a semi. And disengagement is the other extreme. It's, it's politically attractive up front, but as you can see, it's not a good strategy. No, the best strategy is to leverage our awesome might with the minimum necessary effect of troop size. But in order for that to work, we have to remain engaged over the long haul. Otherwise, you don't bring stability. Now, if you do it over the long haul, you get deep learning. You get refined tactical capability. And even when we're not in it for the long haul, and even when the enemies knew we weren't in it for the long haul, our presence in Afghanistan was positive for the Afghan girls who could attend school, for the women who became doctors and, the, the, and became women uh, lawyers, and for the economy at large, and for building an indigenous Afghan army. It would have been much better, though, if the U.S. made it clear that it was staying. But that entire 20-year project collapsed in about 10 days. The political head of state hightailed it out with a bag of cash. He may be a scoundrel, but he observed our lack of commitment. And out of self-interest, he was prepared with an exit plan. And if you're wondering why the Taliban went from insignificant to almost 100% control so fast, you need to look no further than how we abandoned Bagram Air and military base. This is a sprawling compound. It's about an hour north of Kabul. It has two long runways. The most recent runway is more than two miles long, and it cost $96 million back in 2006. It's first class. It also boasts 110 large bomb-proof parking spots for aircraft. It's got a state-of-the-art control tower, a 50-bed hospital, and a modern dental clinic. Even if you believe in disengagement as a strategy, we should have kept Bagram until everyone was safely evacuated. But that's not what happened. In the dark of night, 
We left. As the local army watched the U.S. abandon this very easy-to-keep hub of American power without even the decency to inform its Afghan commander, well, the Afghan army ran away too. Everyone in the Afghan army that we trained knows someone who saw the Taliban behead or amputate people last time they were in power. So that burnished in their psyche. And with the U.S. gone, they shed their uniforms and went into hiding. And that opened the door for the Taliban to march in without firing a shot. So on paper, the Afghan army we trained had hundreds of thousands of well-equipped fighters. But in reality, its few loyal commanders had to buy ammunition, ammunition from crooked supply officers and pay in cash for support, artillery support. This type of thing gets fixed when you're there for the long term. We don't have this problem in other bases where we have no plans to exit. The Afghan special forces were able fighters, but the rank-and-file troops were more often than not commanded by an incompetent relative of a politician. Because of our lack of long-term mindset, we had abdicated our role in requiring controls. Soldiers went unpaid as officials pilfered military budgets. Citizens stayed loyal to their families and their clans, not to a corrupt government that was more likely to shake them down than help them out. The problem with our short-term mindset run by bureaucrats is that we did not fix this type of tribal mindset in the one area we could. We could have insisted on proper controls with all things military indefinitely. That doesn't convert the Afghan people to a different religion or force them to adopt a different culture. Yet we had the moral authority, and I believe the responsibility, to bring order and control over military spending but that would have required the will to remain. And over time, as we found in the other bases, that alone does have some derivative positive impact on culture. The disengagement fans claim it was an endless war. That's really not the right way to look at it. I mean, even with our frail and clumsy version of the limited engagement for the purpose of containment strategy, over the past five years, the U.S.-led coalition had very few military casualties. You enhance that with a long-term approach that allows for more patience, in better timing of Taliban targets when they're exposed, and we could reduce civilian casualties even further. It's not perfect, but a long-term strategy is more likely to demoralize the enemy. Regardless, when the Americans left, the local army did too. You know, back in 2001, the Taliban brutally ruled Afghanistan and they harbored international terrorists. Shortly after that, the United States military expelled them from power. Our forces were no match for them. Now they're back with more equipment and a state-of-the-art airbase. The Taliban has rebranded. Afghanistan has a new name. It's now the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. That political structure could wreak much more havoc and be much more expensive than the U.S. maintaining a permanent presence. Government bureaucracy doesn't solve problems that well, even when they throw billions of dollars at it. But when we look to a multi-decade success of like a South Korea or a Japan and, and other bases around the world, we know there is a way to insert peace. We delegate authority and responsibility to our commanders on the ground. We insist on administrative controls over military spending, and we, we refrain from expansionist approach culturally. We just maintain our limited military role. It's still expensive, and there's certainly some waste still, but it's more efficient and it's less expensive than disengagement. You know, it was just six weeks ago, Biden said, 
the likelihood that there's going to be the Taliban overrunning everything and owning the whole country is highly unlikely. That's his quote. You know, not long ago, an American leader would take the hit for a policy catastrophe. Eisenhower had a mea culpa pre-written prior to D-Day, just in case it went bad. Harry Truman kept the woodcut, the, the buck stops here, on his Oval Office desk, just in case of a debacle. Joe Biden used the same phrase in reference to the fiasco in Afghanistan, but out of defiance, not contrition. The American-backed government surrendered without a fight. And the Taliban have our weapons and have dictated the terms of our departure, and they can boast that they defeated a superpower. If you're bent on what I believe to be the flawed strategy of disengagement, then at least extend the departure date to late winter and remove military hardware and evacuate people methodically when the Taliban's hiding in caves. America's role as the world's leading nation is in jeopardy. It didn't have to be this way. The administration speaks with a defeatist attitude. The Secretary of State seems paralyzed with fear and speaks in terms of what we can't do. The world watches. A superpower that has a history of inserting itself for good and peaceful purposes should not abdicate its role. It's helpful. But if it does abdicate its role, it opens the door for terror and a less altruistic superpower to take its place. I'm hoping we recover to your freedom. Hi, I'm David Farah. Thank you for listening to my dad's podcast, The Barry Farah Show, Culture Shift. Click subscribe now to be sure you don't miss an episode. Share this podcast with your friends on social media and give The Barry Farah Show your five-star rating. Check out today's show notes below this episode and at theberryfarrishow.com. This podcast is also available in video format at The Barry Ferris Show on YouTube. See you next time.